First, we will have Deborah McCarthy, who is the principal uh, deputy assistant secretary, working in the bureau focusing on uh, banking, business, financial affairs, uh, under assistant secretary Jose Fernandez. Ms. McCarthy. Thank you very much. Um, it's a pleasure to be here, and thank you very much for the invitation. Um, Jose would be here, however, he is on his way to uh, prepare for a delegation that's going to Egypt, one of the biggest delegations we have ever sent. So that is, he's doing God's work out there, so that's good. Um, let me just start uh, by general remark and make three key points um, and, and build on them, which is, as we look at um, the region uh, post-Arab Spring, we are looking at it through the lens of an opportunity to foster um, private sector development. I know it's a term that's been used a lot every time a region change, but I think here we are doing it in a different fashion, which is in partnership with groups, associations, and others in order to do it, uh, to do it in, in modern, more modern ways and in slightly different ways. We see a great opportunities in the region. We see great opportunities in infrastructure in particular. One of the things that we are doing uh, within the entire department is also enhancing our profile with business. And I want to underline that. Um, as we have the missions overseas, including in that region, which will probably be expanding on the economic side, though that takes a while and additional funding, um, we are here to leverage and partner uh, between companies and the countries in the region. Uh, we firmly believe, and we've uh, done it, and we will continue to do it, to bring uh, business to the area. The other key point, and I'll elaborate on each of these, is uh, a key element obviously is access to credit locally. So we have engaged across the government to look and see how we can improve the flow of credit, knowing that credit access in many of the countries is available only to the few. The other key element that we are engaged in is looking at what we call development as a business opportunity with uh, infrastructure projects that we will be taking place or future ones that are planned, we are encouraging U.S. business to be there. Time and time again, we see other countries' business there, and we're not seeing U.S. companies there. So we're looking at uh, those mechanisms. So let me go in a little bit more detail on each of these. Um, one of the uh, things that we are doing to knit together better uh, the missions and companies, particularly, and we started with Libya. We started a series of phone calls that now every ambassador in the world has to engage in, which are called direct line. And in Libya in particular, we did it, we sliced it by sector and got American companies, invited American companies to get online directly with the ambassador who was on the ground, who was explaining the realities, the risks, and opportunities and including on that is putting the right people on the phone from the government or other um, associations so they could speak directly then go offline and we're doing that we'll be doing that in Egypt very soon following the delegation and uh, we're doing it across the region we've also in the case of Libya let me just focus on Libya for a second um, which is to uh, basically lead delegations over there that's a normal thing that normally has been done by Department of Commerce but we partner with them um, to do it uh, more vigorously the delegation that's going out to the Egypt is probably the largest that has ever been done uh, actually for a country frankly 
Uh, we're now up to something like 80 companies, and uh, it's going to be led by not only our Deputy Secretary, but we've got the White House involved and uh, USTDA and a number of the agencies. And the aim there is not is to have the companies talk to others and talk to the government to get an idea of where they're heading and particularly the macroeconomic situation and their discussions with the fund. Um, the other key element is um, strategic dialogues. We have strategic dialogues with many of the countries and including in North Africa. Next uh, week we will have our dialogue with Morocco, which is going to have a stronger and heavier economic component. Another element of the region, which is it's not just U.S. alone, under the GA Doville partnership, we're also seeing how across countries we can not only get companies to go in, enhance private sector investment there, but also bring needed training, um, additional assistance in terms of uh, basically changing some of the, the legal structures as required to foster business. Let me move now to financing for private sector investment. Um, the key element here, as I, as I mentioned, is the credit issue. OPIC has um, basically, in a number of countries, um, sped up and announced uh, a number of new initiatives. In Egypt, we're going to, um, they've approved and we're uh, moving to set up a new loan guarantee facility, and that is going to be uh, pushing money through the local banks uh, for small and medium enterprises. I know that's a slight off from the infrastructure focus, but I think it's a key element to get money to smaller enterprises that can support the larger projects. We're also launching enterprise funds, both in Egypt and in Tunisia. They're starting out with some small seed money that Congress gave to us, and we're very grateful for that. It will be all private, and it will be leveraging funds for projects in both countries. In Tunisia, we also have the MCC is going to be going in. They've done assessments, and when that approval process passes through, that will unlock uh, more funds as they target uh, growth opportunities there. The other thing that we did is uh, working with OPIC is to really look and see where there was opportunity for U.S. companies. And let me mention one area that seemed to come out time and time again in the region, which is franchising. More and more studies show that franchising was a unique opportunity for American companies. And that's not something that stood out in the beginning. I mentioned development as a business opportunity, and this is our effort to improve access to public funds for infrastructure development um, to help unlock some private funding. And one key element there, uh, which some people, I believe, looking in the audience know about, which is it took one conversation between the former head of the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development and our undersecretary to start a process which led to the EBRD moving south. And um, it took a lot of lift to get countries to ratify the expansion of the EBRD, which will unleash funds for the private sector. And the first projects in Jordan, Tunisia, and Morocco will be brought to the Bank's Board of Governors on September 18th. We did it thanks to a number of governments in record time. We're also looking, obviously, to the African Development Bank to provide technical expertise and financing for the markets, and obviously with our colleagues at Exim, OPIC, and USTDA, they're engaged heavily in the area. We see, as I mentioned, the opportunities um, that are in the region are um, quite significant. It is not a region, as um, my colleague mentioned, that has been uh, unnatural for the U.S. And, however, we are also looking at the um, engage. We have engaged 
with the diaspora communities through various programs in the government to uh, leverage their knowledge of the region uh, to add to, uh, to the mixture. Uh, it is not seen as a source of funding necessarily for major transformation, but it's the knowledge of the region. We also have another program, uh, the North African Partnership for Economic Opportunity, though non-infrastructure related. It, is set, it has set up with the Aspen Institute boards right across North Africa to look at what is required in order to foster entrepreneurship, private sector development, including setting up platforms where people are mentored from the outside, as we in the United States have enormous mentoring resources for entrepreneurs, and they usually have not gone <coughs> overseas. So we've done a lot of linkage there. Um, again, it's not geared specifically to infrastructure, but I think it, it can leverage and add to new opportunities. Every mission across the world, including in North Africa, has been instructed to work in partnership with business in a new and enhanced way, which I mentioned at the beginning. It is the marching orders for all. So you will find across anybody who is represented in the mission a much more responsive group, an organized group, to look and make sure that entities find the right opportunities and are plugged in with the right people. As I said, enormous opportunity. We're excited about it. The Secretary has been extremely excited by all the things that we are doing and um, the high-level attention and the, the size of the groups that we're, uh, we're sending, and I haven't mentioned other investment of four that we've participated in, are an indication that we see enormous future and potential, and um, we want to encourage everyone to take advantage of that potential. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Ms. McCarthy. Our next speaker is uh, Carl Kress, who is the regional director for the Middle East, North Africa, and Europe at the U.S. Trade and Development Agency. Thank you, John. Thank you very much for the opportunity to, um, to speak here to this group. I haven't spoken here before. It's great to see so many unfamiliar faces, actually, to sort of spread the gospel here of what we can do and how we can all sort of work together here to, to sort of pick up on the things that Deborah we was talking about. Together. Absolutely. In fact, I'm looking uh, tomorrow afternoon, I'm getting on a plane um, to be part of that right. historically large delegation. Uh, I'm curious to see how it all works with everyone moving around on the ground. But I, I get to stay home. He gets to go. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll report afterwards and see which, which, which works out better. It, it should be very exciting. No, uh, just, uh, it's, it is a very interesting and it's, it's a, a great example of the, the economic cooperation between the two countries that we are trying to work together and that there's so much U.S. company interest um, in, in working in Egypt right now. Um, TDA, for those of you who aren't familiar with us, we're a foreign assistance agency um, and we have a very unique role and our mission is specifically economic development and it's in our name trade and development. So on the one hand we're looking for priority economic development projects, typically infrastructure in, a, in developing and middle income countries around the world like all of the, uh, the, the North African countries um, and at the same time we're tr trying to promote the use of U.S. goods, services and technologies in the implementation of those projects. So it's not, with a limited exception, not a tied aid program so we're not. So, so it's not. It's not limited in terms of what the options are for the people overseas when they accept our assistance. But we're looking for projects where they want to work with us. If so if someone's coming to us saying that they're looking for a Chinese solution, then they can go talk to the Chinese. For example, <laughs> it's if they're looking to have. Um, to increase the likelihood that U.S. companies are going to be interested in their particular projects, then we're the people to talk to. Um, 
We have two basic product lines. Basically, is something called the International Business Partnership Program, which is where we bring people over. We have there's the International Visitors Program at State. There's uh, there's delegations from Commerce or similar uh, similar activities in other agencies. But we're very focused on bringing delegations to the U.S. that have very specific buying needs. We look at. Uh, for example, just recently, I had a group from Turkey. It was only three people, but it was from the municipality um, of Izmir. They have a hundred million dollar procurement in uh, intelligent transportation systems for the city. That's of interest to some of our companies. Therefore, we brought them over for a week to look at uh, look at opportunities and meet with U.S. companies. We also do conferences. Um, for instance, some of, some of you may be familiar with last year, we did the Egypt Forward forum and site visits, where we brought over 50 delegates from Egypt to uh, to Washington for for two days of, uh, of, of um, a conference here, and then they fanned out over the U over across the United States, depending on what their sector focus was. Houston for energy, agribusiness in Nebraska, and so on. Um, so on that hand, is we're on that that side is we're just trying to get all the right people in the right room, and then it's up to the U.S. companies to make their cases and hopefully work some deals. On the other hand, we have our project development program, which is where many of you are probably familiar with us, is where we have grant funding for feasibility studies, technical assistance, pilot projects, and so on which is intended to help someone who has a very specific need in a country move it from good idea to implementation stage. And again, we provide the funding for those activities. To try and sort of pick up on some of the things that Deborah was talking about, a very quick survey of the alphabet soup of you know the different agencies and how we fit together. We are part of the NEI cabinet, uh, cabinet the National uh, Export Initiative that John referenced, that the administration is looking to double exports. My understanding is that we're actually very well on track at this yeah. point for that within the uh, within the planned time frame, so we're very pleased with that. Um, like USAID, we are a foreign assistance agency. However, we are only focused on economic development, whereas they have a much broader uh, mandate, looking at you know HIV, health, agriculture, and so on. Like Commerce, for, uh, Foreign Commercial Service, who we work with extremely closely overseas, they are our eyes and ears in the various uh, embassies around the, country, the world for the most part. They are interested in all exports, from you know power turbines to paper clips to franchising to a BMW. They're happy with all of that. We're only focused on um, uh, the specific infrastructure, like the gas turbine or the IT system or the radar system for an airport or something like that. So we're we're more narrow in that and very are very focused. We also tee up activities for our colleagues at uh, Exim Bank and OPIC in terms of if we do the study. Um, to show that a project is viable, then Export-Import Bank may be providing the financing for the ex export of the goods, whereas OPIC may be providing financing or insurance for investment in the project itself. And, of course, we uh, do a lot of policy coordination with the State Department and with USTR, um, working on these various strategic dialogues and, as I said, taking, taking part in next week's uh, business delegation, and also working with USTR on free trade agreement negotiations. We often are part of the, part of the negotiating negotiation process and providing some technical assistance and some elements that may help move the negotiations forward. And then we work very closely with the Department of Energy, FAA, DOT, U.S. Geological Survey, and so on, with their technical expertise for specific types of projects. So we have aviation cooperation programs around the world in some of the larger economies, which is a very strong partnership with the FAA. Um, we have three priority sectors, energy, transportation and telecommunications. We work in some other areas. We do some work in water, environment, and um, um, 
agriculture and so on. But those are the three that we're most focused on because that's where we see the interest plus the U.S. competitiveness. So we are very, we try and get very much into the weeds in terms of what specific niches as well. For instance, in energy, obviously oil and gas is a very big area. Solar has been a very big area for us in terms of, of projects that we can work on. In transportation, heavy freight rail from the United States is recognized worldwide leader. So that's an area that we're very active in. Also, ports development, vessel traffic management systems, um, uh, all of the, uh, the the tracking systems for moving goods and cargo through the supply chain in and out of ports and onto ships and so on. And then telecommunications. This is actually an area that we've had a lot of wrestling with uh, from our through our strategic planning process is because ICT, information communications technology, is sort of in everything. So we, that's, that's, it's, it's hard to, to qualify that as a separate sector because we have aviation projects that have an IT component. We have maritime projects that have an IT component. So we are focused on the telecommunications, the, you know, the, the, the working on getting the infrastructure in place, and then IT throughout across the wide range of, of uh, sectors. Now going narrow, or more specifically with North Africa, we have a priority, uh, we, we focus in particular on countries where we see the greatest amount of U.S. company interest and also the greatest interest and willingness to work with U.S. companies in those countries. For At this point, Egypt and Morocco are the two countries where we have the most uh, most U.S. company interest and activity, and also there's been uh, there's a lot of desire on the part of the countries, uh, you know, the, the both public and private sector grantees in those countries to work with U.S. country companies. So that's where we're most active. We're also now starting to get uh, worked up in Libya. I have several reverse trade missions that I'm going to be bringing over in Libya. So we're seeing that as a potential market as well. We have done some work in Algeria and Tunisia. They're smaller markets and they represent their own challenges and, and sort of less opportunity and given our uh, narrow resources, we, we're trying to target where we can get the most value for our, for our uh, funds and our, our time. Types of projects. Um, hopefully, you picked up as you came in. I, I, there's a um, there's a fact sheet on our Middle East, North Africa portfolio that gives some examples of types of projects we've worked on, um, and also there is a fact sheet on our technical workshops with Egypt Forward that we're going to be working on, bringing people to or setting up uh, uh, workshops in IT, transportation, agribusiness, and energy in Egypt to help promote the use, to help them in moving forward in those areas, but also, again, to promote the use of U.S. goods, services, and technologies. Um, happy to answer questions on any of those specifically. As, actually, one thing that's great in the, in the question and answer is if anyone has specific ideas of particular projects that they might want to bring to us, ask the question, because then I, we can talk through what might work, what doesn't work, and so on. Um, and a quick note on how to work with us. Number one, please go to our website, ustda.gov, and sign up on to get our emails because we it's a bi-weekly uh, pipeline that comes out that lists off all of the reverse trade missions, conferences, feasibility studies, everything that's coming up, and that way you um, can target those activities that are of most interest to you. So and then, obviously, if you're interested, come to the business briefings at the reverse trade missions um, and, um, and, and conferences, and you can always email us. Come to or give us a call. Just 
just bring ideas to us. There is a model proposal form on, on our website, but ironically, I always tell people, please don't fill it out. Is <laughs> take a look at it, get the concepts, and then call me or send me a one-pager or a paragraph saying, this is what I'm interested in doing. Is this something you might be interested in? Because then if it is, then I can send you back to the forum and get more information. But I don't want to waste anybody's time if there's something that just isn't going to work for some particular reason. So thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you, Carl. And next is uh, Rhonda Fahmi Fudom, known to many of you for her previous work on uh, Capitol Hill, where she was very close to uh, Spitzer Abraham, who became uh, Secretary of Energy. And uh, in that capacity, she served as the uh, Associate Deputy Secretary. She's also a member of the Board of Directors of the National Council on U.S.-Arab Relations. Rhonda. Thank you, Dr. Anthony. Um, and thank you to the panelists. I'm even learning so much about um, the progress that uh, we're making, particularly in North Africa. Um, I wanted to focus my comments today uh, particularly on Libya, because I think out of all of the North African countries that certainly I've worked in, and it's been across the board from Morocco to Algeria, Tunisia to Libya and Egypt, Libya to me provides the most opportunities in infrastructure today. Why is that? Well, Libya is unique in that many of you know Libya suffered from 20 plus years of sanctions. When a country is under sanctions, two things happen. Number one, they continue to do business through the black market. But unfortunately, most of the time when you're doing business through the black market, you're getting inferior goods. The second aspect of when you're under sanctions is very little infrastructure development happens. And certainly in the case of Libya, under the Qaddafi regime, Colonel Qaddafi made a very, very purposeful decision not to build anything in the 40 years that he reigned for a variety of reasons. Um, Obviously, the U.S. political uh, relationship between Libya has changed over the years, and I started working in Libya during the Bush administration when they decided they were going to engage with the Gaddafi regime in order to get weapons of mass destruction out of his hands. Through the time period after that, I began working with U.S. companies in the region for the previous five years, and now I just returned back post-revolution to find out what those opportunities were for U.S. companies. And I can tell you honestly, on the good side of things, those opportunities still exist. Why? Because again, looking at all the North African countries, with the exception of Algeria, Libya is back up to post, um, I'm sorry, pre-revolutionary war in the production of its petroleum. As many of you know, Algeria and Libya are the only North African countries that are members of OPEC. But Libya in particular has come back up to about 1.6 million barrels a day, and that's extraordinarily important. Why? Because it is indeed the petroleum industry and the dollars and the profits that are produced from that industry that is going to drive the rest of the economy. That has not changed. Also, the environment and what they need has not changed. I can honestly tell you, very little was built 
between the time in which Gaddafi was normalized, if you will, and the time the revolution broke out. There were a few office buildings here and there, a couple of residential projects, some projects that tried to get off the ground, and I know many of you in the audience who are with U.S. companies were extraordinarily frustrated to see some of these projects move forward, but nothing ever really happening. I think also Libya not only has the petroleum dollars, but many of you may know that their Libyan Investment Authority, which is the sovereign wealth fund in Libya, had most of its frozen assets released. And I say most because, indeed, there is still about $60 billion in the LIA's frozen assets here in the United States that remain frozen at the request of the Libyan government. And you may ask why. It's because they have so much money they don't know what to do with it, to be very frank. So what do we have? To be very frank in a commercial, here's what we have. Libya's got all the money in the world, and they've got nothing. It's a beautiful environment for all of you. What do they need? Everything. My last trip there was two months ago, and I will be going at the end of this month. And while I was there, in the eight days I was there, here's what I heard their needs were. Roads, bridges, hospitals, high-speed rails, residential and commercial buildings, port facilities, hotels, shopping centers, prisons, airports, power plants, desal facilities, border security. All of these things are wrapped up in the challenges of what is now a new government. Now, many of you may say, well, because the government's unstable, what are the political factors? Well, here's the positives. In a way in which the U.S. didn't have that relationship with Libya prior to the revolution, I, I, I akin it to sort of a cold, difficult marriage prior to the revolution. Now most Libyans and most members of the Libyans' new representative legislative body are very positive towards America. That is because of our role in NATO, no question about it. And how does that affect you in the private sector? Well, of course it does. There's no question in my mind if you're doing business across North Africa or across the world, the U.S. political relationship with that particular country, no question about it, weighs in when you are bidding against a foreign company for an infrastructure project. Now, yes, there are challenges, and the questions that I get certainly from American companies, well, who the heck do we talk to when we go to Libya? So what I'd like to do today is just give you a little road map about a strategy for market entry, particularly in Libya, and then, of course, take questions in the end. So what I think you know, the best thing to do, and certainly you'll hear this echoed by the U.S. government, is please go visit, go on the ground, go see for yourself what are the opportunities there, and while you're on the ground, try to identify those opportunities. The first place I personally take my clients, and I work with a lot of U.S. companies, is legal counsel. I work with a Libyan law firm who knows the laws. And the reason why that's important is that is going to determine your market entry strategy. Are you going to partner with the government? Is your infrastructure project rising to the level of a national security waiver such that your relationship with the Libyan government in what you're building or doing doesn't require a joint venture? doesn't require an agency or doesn't require a Libyan partner. But in most cases, even if you're doing, even if you're bidding on an RFP and working with the Libyan government, you will need a Libyan partner. And my favorite question is, well, Rhonda, who do we partner with? As if there's an approved list of people. There's not. 
And what you have to do is have the right knowledge, ability to, to function on the ground, and be able to vet your partners appropriately. And there are, again, a variety of ways you can operate either as an independent operator, a joint venture, a subcontractor. I've seen American companies go in and subcontract with other companies and do a fabulous job there. So let's talk about the big elephant in the room, and I'm not talking about the GOP elephant here, (laughs) politics aside. I'm talking about the hiring of an agent on the ground in Libya. Because Libya has been so closed for so many years, people don't know folks on the ground. You know, the big question, were they or were they not affiliated with the Gaddafi regime? Well, I can tell you right now that doesn't matter. A lot of people have been given passes on that front. Um, Who are they? What are their names? I can tell you I'm of Arab background and I can tell you sometimes the names are not really the names. And I haven't seen any private sector firm in this country be able to vet any Arab names and get any information on them. You know, what about the terms of the contract in which you engage your agent and what about the big elephant in the room which is the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act? Believe me, every Arab government knows the very good U.S. law that we have here called the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. But what I advise my clients to do is let's sit down with the SEC. Let's sit down with the lawyers at Justice Department. At what point do you have to vet your agent so that you don't violate FCPA? What are the protections you have to engage in as a U.S. company so that if you innocently hire somebody and it turns out later on there is some sort of corruption, what what responsibility as a U.S. company do you have? And that I'm very sensitive to because I am an attorney as well. Now the question becomes, once you decide to engage, how do you identify these opportunities? And my favorite thing is called real or imagined. Okay? You hear about an opportunity. Is it real? It is important for you to track down the individual, the government agency, or the project head that is responsible for that. And then the question is, or is it imagined? Is it a case where they say, well, there might be an RFP for this, but as the American company who's big an infrastructure project, can you help us write that RFP? And then the government takes the RFP and bids it out and you don't get the opportunity necessarily to participate in that. And so it's very, very important to really drill down seriously and find out whether that is opportunity is real or imagined. Whether there are immediate opportunities for you or long-term opportunities for you. And as American companies, again, I've seen, particularly in Libya, the chicken and the egg problem. Well, Rhonda, we don't have any contracts there. We want to get work there. Should we establish our presence there, open up an office, put somebody at a front desk to answer the phone, put a phone board sign behind us and say, we're here in Libya? Or do we wait to have a contract before we establish a presence there? My advice to you, establish a presence there. It does not cost a lot of money to say to the Libyans, we are an American company, we are here to do business, and we are here to stay. And finally, I want to end with this idea of cultivating a long-term relationship. Aside from establishing your physical presence in country, what are some other indicators as an American company that you are here to stay? Number one, the Libyans very much need training opportunities. You know, again, as a result of being in sanctions for 20 years, nobody got in, nobody got out. The education system wasn't particularly advanced, and so they need ongoing, what we call continuing education programs. They may have their bachelor's degree in in engineering, 
but they certainly need the most up-to-date training on the engineering front. Also, educational opportunities. It would be great to have a strong, if you go in there as a private company, bring some Libyans to the United States, work with the U.S. Embassy in Tripoli to get those visitor visas, and bring them here to your headquarters for two weeks to train them in whatever the focus of your business is. Also, long-term educational opportunities and providing scholarships to get graduate degrees for Libyans would be extraordinarily go extraordinarily long way into showing you're here to stay. Hiring nationals is absolutely essential. Even though they may not be fully trained in whatever your, your area is, you must hire nationals. There must be a way to put Libyans back to work. And finally, in order to ensure your present and long-term future success, it's extraordinarily important that the way in which you enter Libya in the market and the way in which you do, lib do business in the, in the Libyan market is both legally and ethically appropriate. Um, again, I just end by saying I, more than anybody, understand what the challenges are because Libya has been closed for so long. But I believe when you take the minimal risks right now, the rewards will be quite large in the future. So thank you, and I'd be happy to answer questions at the end. Great. Thank you, Rhonda. And next we have Laura Lombard, who's substituting for Sink Asidar, who was not able to make it, but uh, we give him the credit for having the idea and the inspiration uh, for a seminar such as this, uh, focusing on the issues uh, we seek to address. Laura? Thank you, Dr. Anthony. Um, I'm really pleased to be here today, and I'm kind of here in a, a dual role, um, both as representing my companies that are global advisors um, and then also as an alumni of the National Council's internship program. Um, so I'm very pleased to be here. Um, I want to talk to you guys, or I want to talk to everyone today about a few different things. One, I'm going to start more broadly and um, just kind of give an overview of more of the political situation that's going on across um, North Africa. But then I'm going to tailor it down to a specific infrastructure example um, that some of you may be interested in, in learning more about and also possibly pursuing um, in the future. Um, from a private sector perspective, um, the North Africa region and, of course, the Middle East as a whole right now um, is, a bit, is a bit daunting. Um, with the Arab Spring events over the last 18 months, um, politically speaking, economically speaking, there are a lot of questions that still remain um, when you're trying to decide um, if you're going to enter different markets. Um, going into North Africa itself, you know, you're looking at Egypt, um, for instance, um, where the political situation has been rocky at best over the last 18 months. Um, it's been unpredictable. Um, that said, a lot of good opportunities there as well as uh, we were talking about in terms of the delegation that's going over um, shortly by the, you know, sponsored by the U.S. government. Um, if you're looking at Tunisia, um, probably one of the more stable of the um, post-Arab Spring countries, um, but still a relatively new government. They're young. They're learning how to govern. Um, their economic um, philosophies are still somewhat in flux, um, and, and they're trying to, to learn themselves. Um, Libya, as, as Rhonda just uh, was discussing, um, you know, they also have a new and interim government for the next uh, six, six months or so, um, trying to get the security situation taken care of on the ground, um, but that's still in flux, and as you're deciding as, private, as a private sector company to enter, these are all things that you want to take into account. Um, moving towards Morocco and Algeria, um, both of these countries, again, um, so far have escaped the Arab Spring um, protests and, and upheaval. Um, that said, there's still, you know, there's still questions and um, 
you know, Morocco, for instance, there there's still an undertone at this point um, of public discontent with with um, some of the new policies that have been instituted over the last 18 months by the government. Um, that said, it's really important for um, all of the private sector companies to really do due diligence on these companies going in because there are wonderful opportunities, as Rhonda mentioned, in Libya, um, infrastructure in particular, um, across all of these countries um, are fantastic opportunities that if you time it right and go in in the right way, um, due, dil due diligence ahead of time, provide very, uh, very lucrative opportunities for you. The main topic that I wanted to, to discuss today, um, across, again, the Middle East region, North Africa, um, also very much so in the Gulf region, um, is a new push for renewable energy sector. Um, across, starting with, um, with Saudi Arabia, they are very much interested in being able to um, to produce their own renewable energy so that they're not having to um, send or use their own domestic oil to, um, for domestic purposes, but rather could send it across to, uh, or you know, send it to the world markets, making more money for, the, for themselves. Um, other countries that are very much interested, Saudi Arabia, as I mentioned, UAE, Tunisia, Egypt, Libya, Jordan, and Morocco, which is going to be my um, more specific example that I plan to give. Um, have all made green technology a priority um, sector. They're all looking into uh, solar, wind, nuclear, biomass, and hydropower options. Um, also, an interesting uh, initiative that's occurring between Middle Eastern countries and the EU is a project called Desert Tech. Um, Desert Tech is a large-scale renewable energy initiative that's going to be a smart grid across the region. The idea is... Um, or countries will use their solar power projects that they're instituting now. Um, they will both use, that again, the, the energy domestically, but then also excess would be sold to Europe, um, which is a great project um, that is, is still in the, the beginning stages, but over the coming decades um, will be extremely, uh, will be extremely, provide extremely lucrative opportunities for companies who are interested in getting involved in that. Moving on to Morocco. Um, which is my specific topic for today. Um, Morocco is leading the way um, for clean energy technology or initiatives within the entire region. They are actually the first country to institute an actual project um, that is um, now being funded at this moment. Um, the country currently imports approximately 95% of its energy, uh, making it extremely vulnerable at this point to um, oil, prices, um, oil price fluctuations, um, and its dependency on foreign oil at this point is also draining the country's trade, um, drain on the country's trade balance and foreign exchange reserves. Um, as one can imagine, um, this current reality has put a great strain on both the Moroccan government in terms of its political and economic abilities, um, and it wants to amend that over the coming next um, over the coming eight years. Um, so, in a climate of you know, this initiative started in 2009. Going back to the geopolitical front on that, um, they are pushing it forward a lot more now because of the Arab Spring events. The Moroccan government is, you know, is, is concerned, um, and they want to push forward initiatives that are going to help them create jobs, which they're hoping that this particular initiative over the next eight years will, um, will help 
produce about 50,000 different jobs uh, for their people. Um, they're hoping to, that they can sell um, excess energy through the Desert Tech program um, to, to Europe over time. That'll be down the road, but that's the, that's the hope. Um, it will also help them with uh, maintaining their, um, their current foreign reserves um, and growing them in the future. Um, the plan at this point is to do uh, two megawatts of solar power, two megawatts of wind power, and then um, an additional two megawatts of power that would be produced through biomass and hydropower and um, possibly other types of, of renewable energy. Um, the first project that is now um, occurring is um, going to be a joint venture, or, a, or I should say a public-private partnership. Um, it's being funded by the World Bank, um, individual government, sorry, the World Bank, um, the European Investment Bank, France's Development Agency, German Development Bank, the European Commission, and um, additional uh, Moroccan institutions. In addition, um, the, the Moroccan government is working with Saudis, uh, with a Saudi company to make this, to, to have the project occur. Um, and it's going to be estimated at about a, a billion dollars, which they have found financing for. Um, so in terms of American companies entering this market, Historically, European country, companies have had a head start within this region due to their proximity, um, due to um, their, their close economic ties that they've had over, um, over the course of history. That said, um, I had a meeting last week uh, with the Solar, Solar Energy um, Association, and they believe that at this point American companies have caught up or can catch up very quickly. The technology within the U.S. is here, um, whereas even three or four years ago it wasn't. Um, so that it's actually a very prime time for U.S. companies who are interested in this particular initiative to take advantage of it. The other part I will add is that the U.S. and, and Morocco have a free trade agreement. And um, I know from speaking with Moroccan officials that they very much want to take advantage of this free trade agreement in a stronger way than they've been able to so far. Um, and this is also this is an initiative that they would like to to see and, and promote American companies entering the market to help them with future um, future projects in the solar, wind, um, and clean tech and clean energy field in general. Um, lastly, um, in terms of financing, that is the big that is the big elephant in the room in general. So they've been able to finance this first project through the entities that I have mentioned. The African Development Bank earlier this week um, pledged an additional. Um, $800 million um, towards future projects. Um, so as I said, over the next uh, eight to ten years, Morocco plans to up their projects um, in this regard so that 42% of their energy comes from renewable rather than external sources, um, you know, oil and such. So I'll leave it there. Uh, if you have any questions about this particular initiative, please let me know. All right. Thank you, Laura. Uh, next is uh, Stephen uh, Mayo who is the uh, business development uh, officer for uh, project and uh, structured finance, a very particular detail, uh, specific uh, skill and need uh, that he focuses on. Steve. Thank you. Uh, again, like the other panelists, I appreciate the opportunity to be here, and uh, good morning to everyone. And can you all hear me? I guess that's better now. <clears throat> So yes, as uh, as Dr. Uh, Anthony mentioned, I uh, do have a very specific 
focus as far as finance, uh, my focus is not regional. So uh, excuse me for not being as um, regionally focused as my, my colleagues here on the panel. Uh, <clears throat> I uh, am in our project and structured finance group at Exim Bank, and we focus on long-term infrastructure financing. Uh, under you know various financial structures, uh, but we define long term as uh, repayment periods of more than seven years and dollar values of more than ten million dollars <throat> so until I would say nine or twelve months ago, I think a lot of people well, maybe you guys in the room are the exception, but a lot of people uh, did not know what the Exim Bank was. Uh, number one, that it existed. Number two, what it did. Uh, so let me give you just a, a basic background. Uh, we're not a new kid in town. We've been around since 1934. We were part of uh, the New Deal uh, Creation of you know focusing on uh, U.S. Uh, internal development uh, back in the 30s. Interestingly, our first transaction was with Cuba. Um, I find that to be very, very interesting now, since uh, if you look at our uh, country schedule on our website, Cuba is what we call a footnote seven, where we are legally prohibited from doing business. Um, so that's just a, a fun fact that I like to share. <coughs> Uh, we were primarily focused on sovereign financing for the first 50 or 60 years of our existence. And then we moved into uh, doing private sector financing as well. Uh, frankly, that is the bulk of what we do these days. Uh, I think about 10 to 15% of our financing, or 10, per, 10 to 15% of our portfolio is sovereign, and the rest is uh, private sector financing now. So we have made quite a shift in the last uh, 20 or 25 years. <clears throat> As a U.S. government agency, we uh, have a congressional mandate to accomplish certain goals. Those include small business, um, sub-Saharan Africa, unfortunately not, which does not include North Africa, uh, renewable energy, and then medical technologies. Uh, we also provide uh, in our product spectrum uh, supplier financing for those U.S. companies that are looking to do business abroad. Uh, we provide insurance, working capital guarantees, supply chain finance guarantees, <clears throat> and then for our buyers, or their buyers, I should say, uh, abroad, we provide direct loans where we, Exim Bank, are the lender, and then we provide loan guarantees to commercial banks. So the commercial bank is actually funding the loan and getting the guarantee from Exim Bank uh, for that, that coverage. Currently, we have a portfolio of about $100 billion. Uh, in our reauthorization that came through, I think, in May, uh, that we had a, an increase in the amount uh, that we were allowed to provide in our portfolio. Uh, that portfolio limit has been a challenge in the last year or 18 months uh, because, as all of you see in the headlines and as you have experienced, I'm sure, uh, credit is tight. Uh, credit is just frankly unavailable uh, for some countries. Uh, some banks aren't lending. Uh, so we have stepped in <coughs> to fulfill our role as what we have traditionally called uh, as a lender of last resort. Um, I think these days in some situations we're a lender of only resort. So we've become very popular, uh, both here and <laughs> abroad. We are, we are very popular. 
uh, in our portfolio, the largest sectors are uh, largest sectors represented are aircraft, uh, oil and gas, and power. Uh, so as Carl mentioned, one of their focuses is power. Uh, that is where we have done historically a lot of business, <clears throat> both in thermal uh, as well as nuclear and renewable. Uh, finally, uh, last year uh, was a, a, quite a record year for us. Um, we've seen, well, we've had, at the time, we had record years uh, for the last three years. And we had authorizations last year of $34 billion uh, that was including loans, loan guarantees, and insurance. Um, our business, as I said, has grown significantly since 2008, since the financial crisis really kicked in. Um, we have <clears throat> stepped into a lot of uh, financings where we were either not involved in the beginning or our participation has increased significantly uh, because of credit issues. So uh, this year we are expecting another uh, significant year, maybe not a record year, uh, but very significant. Uh, the growth areas that we have seen uh, in the last few years uh, include high-income countries defined by the OECD, so countries uh, in Western Europe, uh, countries like Australia, uh, where, frankly, uh, financing is just not available in the, in the market for the large infrastructure projects that are being developed. We've also seen uh, a lot of growth in renewable energy. Uh, in the last two years, we did a lot of solar. Uh, this year, we're seeing a lot of business in wind. Uh, so I, we're still doing solar, but really the, the growth is, is in wind for this year. Uh, the other area that we've seen a lot of growth in in the last two years is satellites. Uh, with the increased demand for uh, data, mobile data, uh, the increasing number of people using phones, the increasing number of phones that each person has, uh, that's growing uh, the demand for data. Uh, and also a lot of satellites are at the point of needing to be replaced. So we've seen a lot of growth in, in satellites in the last few years. So that's a, a snapshot of, of where Exim Bank is at the moment. Uh, I wanted to give a, a little more background on, uh, on the bank generally. Uh, we are an export credit agency. Uh, unlike TDA, AID, we are not a development agency. So when we provide financing, we fully expect to be repaid on time with interest. Uh, we do not provide grants. Um, there's no, um, well, there's very little forgiveness um, of our, our debt. Um, our, <laughs> our default rate historically has been between one and a half and two percent. So we're very diligent on the front end of assessing credit, but also very diligent on the back end if something happens of getting our, um, our money back. And uh, having the heft of the U.S. government, I think, is, uh, is very helpful in that regard. Uh, so we are like a lot of other agencies around the world uh, in, in that being an export credit agency, we all, we all follow the same set of rules for the most part. Uh, so you know, there are 
I don't know how many, 50 export credit agencies around the world, I believe. Uh, most of the high-income countries, as I mentioned, have these, uh, and we work together on a regular basis. Uh, we all follow the OECD arrangement on officially supported export credits. Uh, so that allows us to work on a level playing field. Uh, that arrangement has sector understandings for renewable energy, for nuclear, uh, and also for aircraft, so that the, uh, depending on the sector, the reins are tightened or the reins are loosened so that we, are all, we can all uh, work together well. And we also work with a lot of development uh, banks and large projects around the world. Uh, we work with the multilaterals like the IFC, um, and uh, we rarely work with the World Bank, mostly with the IFC. So we have experience working with a lot of different lending banks, and I don't want to give the commercial banks short shrift. Short shrift. They just have not been in the market uh, in these large projects in, in the last two years. But we do work with them uh, as much as they want to. Uh, so in North Africa, we are uh, open, um, and I'll direct you to our website, to our country limitation schedule, which provides a guide to where we're open for business and how we can do business there in each country. So just briefly, um, I can say for the, the five countries that we're focused on, I should say for four of the five countries that we're focused on, we are open uh, with the exception of Libya. We uh, are currently on a hold, so we're not accepting applications, but I expect that that will be changing uh, in the near future. Uh, since, as uh, Rhonda mentioned earlier, there's a lot of activity in Libya, a lot of change happening, uh, and we will be uh, keeping a close eye on the situation to determine when we are able to open and provide cover in, in Libya. Uh, one case study that I wanted to mention is uh, an, a project from, uh, I think, 2004, 2005, where, as Carl mentioned, um, where USTDA did the feasibility study, and fortunately, and the system worked as it should, uh, USTDA did the feasibility study, the developer chose U.S. equipment, U.S. goods and services, and then Exim Bank was able to provide uh, financing for a partial piece of that project, and that was the Egypt Basic Industries Corporation uh, ammonia facility. <coughs> So we provided a $226 million loan guarantee. Uh, that was in 2005. And if you're aware of Egypt and that project, um, you'll know that came online in uh, full production in 2009. So it is providing um, fertilizer uh, to, I guess, regional um, entities, but also um, around the world, I'm sure. Um, Sorry, if I could just add one thing. $278 million in U.S. exports, and it led to another project in Egypt with a $2.5 billion project with over half of that in U.S. exports that we signed agreements with, or the agreements were signed on last year. So there's yes. some really nice stories on yes. how we can work together. So we we actually do know each other. You know, we, we do talk to each other. Uh, agencies do work together, and this is a good example of, of how that that communication works. And we can uh, encourage economic development, and then provide the financing, uh, which supports the jobs here in the U.S. but also jobs uh, in the other country as well. And with that, I will uh, leave it to questions at the end. Okay. Last but by no means least is uh, Kurt 
Silvers. Uh, he's at the interface between the organizational aspects of the private sectors of uh, all Arab countries and uh, linking them to business opportunities for American uh, companies in uh, Arab uh, economies. Uh, Kurt. Thank you very much, John. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thanks uh, to all of the audience members for coming out uh, here at the beginning of what promises to be a very busy and exciting fall for uh, us Washingtonians. Um, I'll just say that I, I am Executive Vice President at the National U.S. Arab Chamber of Commerce, NUSAC. Um, NUSAC is uh, the oldest and most broadly focused uh, American organization of its kind uh, dedicated to promoting and expanding trade between the United States and all 22 countries of the Arab world. We've been in existence for, for over 40 years. Uh, we're a member-based, uh, you know, uh, non-profit chamber of commerce. And uh, as I say, our, our mission is to promote trade between the United States and, and the Arab world. We do a lot of activities uh, 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 aimed at that, at that uh, achieving that goal, including a lot of uh, many trade missions and reverse trade missions. We just had a trade mission uh, about two months ago uh, to Libya and Tunisia. We took a dozen or, or more American companies to those two countries, and I'll talk a little bit more about that. Um, but that is essentially uh, who we are. Uh, and I guess why I'm sitting here today. Uh, there's a little bit of more information about NUSAC out on the front table, and you can always visit our website, www.nusac.org. Um, I think we've had a lot of very, very insightful and, and, uh, and, and very accurate, frankly, uh, comments from people, and I'll try not to rehash a lot of those, uh, those comments and, and, and observations. But... Um, I will take a, a little bit of time to talk about um, North Africa and, and, and many of the opportunities that are developing there, um, frankly, as a res in many cases as a result of what, you know, the so-called Arab Spring, um, which is now going into its second autumn. <laughs> um, but, you know, we hear a lot, uh, a lot about the region generally and about the, the political and, uh, changes that have been going on. Uh, you know, and, and in American press, uh, it's often a, you know, portrayed as a scene of chaos and uncertainty um, that's wreaking havoc with the economies and political institutions across the region. Um, and, uh, I mean, certainly there's been an element of that, to be sure. But uh, I'd like to suggest that this uh, so-called Arab Spring doesn't just mean chaos and uncertainty, but in fact has brought many, many significant economic reforms, greater transparency and greater openness in bidding processes and opened markets um, that had essentially been closed in many cases uh, throughout uh, the region, and frankly, particularly in North Africa. Um, uh, and this process is not yet concluded, uh, but, uh, for sure. Um, so what are the prospects that we, NUSAC, see uh, in, in North Africa? Certainly, we see the prospects um, as very, very good, very good indeed. Um, U.S. trade with the Middle East as a whole continues to rise significantly and is on track, in fact, to meet uh, President Obama's national uh, export initiative goal of, of doubling exports by 2015 across the region as a whole and in North Africa uh, as well. So, uh, frankly, uh, the MENA region is, is a trade and, and commercial success story um, despite 
some of the recent uh, uncertainties, and in some cases, as I say, because of it. NUSAC will will very soon be releasing our um, Arab Trade Outlook 2015. We we take the risk of trying to project a little bit, um, and um, which which we'll go through on a country by country basis and and give some of our projections for all 22 Arab countries. Um, but I'd like to just give a few little preview summaries uh, of what I think we'll include in that in that report. Um, uh, U.S. exports to all 22 Arab countries we uh, see we project will reach 167 over 167 billion dollars by 2015. Um, of the s- six countries in North Af- Africa, if we include Egypt, um, uh, NUSAC projects uh, U.S. exports will will top uh, 31 billion dollars by 2015, which is an increase from only 13.4 billion dollars last year. So definitely, we're, uh, we project uh, the U.S. will reach that doubling of exports in North Africa. Uh, clearly, clearly, political and economic uncertainties in the region have not derailed U.S. trade with with the region. Um, as I mentioned, NUSAC was privileged to lead a trade delegation uh, to Libya and Tunisia about two months ago. Um, uh, we see a lot of opportunity there. That's part of the reason we did it. But, but I want to emphasize the main reason we took a trade delegation to those two countries is because American businesses and businesses, businesses in the region were demanding that we do that. I mean, uh, it wasn't just us. Uh, holding out, holding out an opportunity. I mean, businesses on both sides of the of the uh, Atlantic wanted that to happen, which which I think demonstrates a real and serious interest um, in the region. Um, you know, I'm happy to report that one of our delegates, at least, has already established operations in Tunisia uh, from a, as a result of that, that trade mission with a view toward uh, using Tunisia as a base to, to uh, service the North African market. Uh, of the projected uh, exports to the region that I discussed, uh, um, that I mentioned, uh, we see at NUSAC, we see the big breakdown of exports being approximately 40% services. Um, hang on a minute here, I can't read. And, and about 10% agricultural exports with the remainder uh, being manufactured goods. That, that's a rough estimate. Um, but and we also see those exports for North Africa supporting approximately a quarter billion, a quarter million uh, um, U.S. jobs, based on U.S. Department of Commerce uh, metrics. So that's you know a very significant uh, trade trade uh, numbers. Another uh, key finding in our 2015 outlook um, is that we identify four primary economic drivers in the region, and they are in order, uh, infrastructure build-out, um, which is good news for this, uh, this subject today, this panel today, uh, upstream energy development and downstream petro- petrochemical projects, consumer spending, number three, and defense acquisitions. Uh, the defense needs in the region are going up, not down. 
uh, I'd like to echo something I think Rhonda said at the uh, uh, at least as important to America, at least as important to the region as to America, is the theme of jobs, jobs, jobs. Um, the region has an extreme need for job creation, and anybody who goes there with a project um, and can uh, can demonstrate job creation for the region will have will have a definite leg up. Uh, I also want to uh, on that on that theme echo the the. Um, Admonition that was offered by several other people, which is that uh, you need to be in the region, you need to be present, you need to go. Uh, whether you establish uh, an oper- base of operation, as Rhonda suggested, I, or, or find another way to be present, there is no uh, there is no um, uh, um, good alternative <laughs> um, to being present in the region. Mm-hmm. Establishing these long-term relationships is absolutely critical anywhere that you want to work in, in North Africa or the Middle East more broadly. And, um, you know, I will say one of the, I think, shortcomings a lot of times of American businesses trying to set up in the region is our modus operandi, American modus operandi, tends to be to fly in, put the contract on the table and say, you know, here it is, uh, and, and get it signed and come home. It won't work. You can't, you can't address the region that way. Uh, if, 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 if that's your approach, you know, you're going to be very frustrated. But, but if you spend the time and, and uh, you know, go and establish a, a bit of a presence and demonstrate that you're there for the long term, you, you will have tremendous opportunities that will stand you in good stead for a long time to come. Um, I think Rhonda's uh, comments about Libya and the opportunities there are, are right on the money. Uh, and I think her sort of uh, b- her blueprint for for market development is true not only for Libya, but I think it's a good blueprint to apply to all the countries in the region. And I and I won't sort of belabor those points or go over them again. Um, but let me just put a few kind of snapshot observations uh, before you um, for some of the countries in the region, and I'll just kind of go in alphabetical order here a little bit. Um, in Algeria, uh, there is a there is a great urgency to f- to fully implement uh, their um, 287 billion dollar infrastructure development plan uh, that's been in place for t- 2010 to 2014. Um, it's been a little bit um, uh, delayed, but Algeria sees great great urgency in in getting that uh, infrastructure development uh, uh, plan back on track. Um, and you know, current plans in, in Algeria uh, are to expand local skills base through training and education, supporting small, medium-sized enterprises, and diversi- diversifying the economic base. Um, there's a there's a particular priority uh, priority being placed right now on expanded metal production and aluminum production, in addition to steel. So those are some areas that you might want to pay uh, attention to in Algeria. I mean, of course, it is broader than that, but, but as I say, I'm going to just give you some snapshot observations. Uh, in Egypt, uh, the commercial situation is a little bit challenging at the moment because, frankly, government and private sector uh, investment dollars are, are tight. Um, nevertheless, the needs are great, 
and opportunities do exist. And I know this, this group that's going to Egypt will find many opportunities. Energy production in Egypt is certainly one area um, that is significant uh, and that has opportunities. The World Bank uh, recently provided about a $240 million loan that will help finance construction of a, of a new uh, natural gas turbine power plant in Egypt. Um, and Egypt has targeted that uh, by 2020, 20% of its power will come from uh, renewable energy, including wind and solar. Um, they're, they're actively seeking partners uh, to, to um, do more at, at development in Egypt on energy production. I know Houston-based Apache Corporation has, has recently uh, announced an investment of a billion dollars in Egypt uh, um, through next year uh, for uh, ongoing uh, energy production in the Western Desert. I'll also take a little bit of a side note here and... and, and uh, uh, amplify some of the comments were made earlier about the political momentum in the region. Uh, it just sort of occurred to me here talking about Egypt, but uh, it's, it's definitely true. The political momentum in North Africa particularly is moving in an American, uh, in a direction positive to America. Uh, countries across North Africa, including Egypt, are very, very eager to work with American firms. That's one thing we, we found on our trip to Libya and Tunisia, and one of the reasons we, we took that trip, and it, it's also true in Egypt. Um, and I will say, um, you know, the other side of that coin is, frankly, the political winds are blowing against some of our competitors in that region um, who have traditionally been dominant or, or are seeking to be. So it's, 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 it's a, not only a tremendous time from a business perspective, but also from this political momentum perspective to build those relationships in the region. Um, okay, with Libya, uh, Rhonda, I can't say it better or, or more thoroughly than, than Rhonda has already. I just will mention that... Um, you know there is a need. Uh, there is a need for everything. What Rhonda said. You know they have all the money in the world and they have all the needs in the world, and and they're they're ex- particularly in Libya eager to work with American companies. Uh, they have a you know the, the estimates range from 200 billion to you know almost 500 billion dollars over 10 years to rebuild the Libyan infrastructure. I personally believe it's probably on that higher end of that scale. The needs are massive. Uh, and, you know, they're looking for American firms. You know, Libya has just recently passed a $55 billion budget for infrastructure development. Uh, it's, it's projected, it's, it's focused largely on health care, worker training, and electrical grid restoration. But in addition to that, there are many billions of dollars uh, that, uh, that are part of contracts that were let earlier that have been frozen or are recently unfrozen but are being reassessed for their uh, uh, sort of, uh, shall I say, economic realism. I think the view is that some of those projects had been let under less than, uh, less than fair and open economic uh, and commercial considerations. And uh, many of those projects uh, are, are open to American businesses. Uh, and, and should be a target of, of interest for American businesses. The government, the current government wants to make sure these, these contracts are let on solid economic uh, grounds and not part of the old crony, crony system. Um, 
In Morocco, uh, Laura mentioned several good, uh, very positive uh, developments there. Um, I'll just say, according to market research reports, Morocco is, is devoting tremendous resources to construction and infrastructure. The Moroccan construction uh, sector is estimated to have grown at about 7.5% uh, last year, and expenditures on infrastructure are expected to be a key component of Morocco's GDP growth of about 4% uh, uh, through 2016, uh, at least. Renewable energy, as Laura mentioned, is, is one of the biggest uh, uh, sort of publicly financed uh, 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 projects in Morocco and perhaps one of the biggest in the region at the moment. Um, um, Morocco is putting great emphasis on the development of wind and solar energy, and the country expects to spend about $17 billion uh, on the energy sector uh, here in the coming, I don't, I don't know the date exactly, but here in the coming four or five years. Uh, so there are great opportunities there, and there are real resources available uh, in Morocco for, for that sector. Tunisia, I'll just conclude, is um, also... A, a country that has great potential. Um, Tunisia is um, uh, probably on the more developed scale uh, in in North Africa, which is which is um, a positive, I guess, and, and, and a negative. There's not there's not as much massive need for infrastructure development, but but. Uh, they know what they're doing in Tunisia, and they have a very well-educated uh, uh, workforce in Tunisia that is is very, very able to uh, take advantage of opportunities not only in Tunisia but to serve as a base into into uh, North Africa and many of its neighbors, Libya in particular. As I said, one of our delegates just from last month's uh, trade mission has already established operations in Tunisia uh, to take advantage of not only opportunities in Tunisia but into Libya particularly. Could uh, you wrap up? Uh, absolutely, John. I, w I was coming right to that point. <laughs> so um, the, um, the uh, opportunities in the region are vast and growing, and uh, now is the time for American companies to, to be present in the region and to build those relationships that will carry them forward well into the future. Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you. We have a lot of questions here. Uh, but uh, it's rare that these six get together as a group. Uh, but one uh, takeaway for sure is to recognize them as individuals and the institutions that they represent. And if you're completely new to um, Arab North Africa or investing or considering it or exploring the possibilities, here are six uh, individuals and institutions that you might send an intern at least uh, to uh, uh, do intelligence information gathering on whatever project or specification uh, you have an interest in seeing whether there's a market for your your product and to assuage some of your nervousness. Uh, there are four others at, at least you might uh, touch base with, and one is the American uh, Arab American Bankers Association for North America, which is based in New York. They have a a wealth of expertise and experience and regular newsletter and they are a fount of, of information on the banking aspect and consultants as well. There's the U.S. Chamber of uh, Commerce uh, that has long been focused uh, on Arab North Africa 
uh, in throughout the, the Mediterranean where there's expertise uh, that you could tap into. There is in the Treasury Department the Office of Foreign Asset Control, uh, which comes into play in terms of yes or no on certain uh, contentious uh, uh, issues, uh, certainly in a big way with regard to Sudan. I'm not sure with regard to Libya uh, because of the long uh, period of being under sanctions, but that would be um, uh, of some interest and value to uh, uh, look at that as well. And then the Foreign Commercial Service of the Department of Commerce. We have here Charles Kestenbaum and others who have served that function. Uh, their uh, consulting services are largely free of charge. They, uh, they're paid for by everybody in the audience who's an American taxpayer, uh, but there is a kind of long-standing mindset of Americans. I don't want to go anywhere near the American embassy uh, there because there's anti-Americanism in the region, and I do not want to be seen um, as supportive or an agent of Fifth Column or identified in any way at all with, uh, with their embassy and our positions, our policies. This is uh, short-sighted and foolish um, uh, to not take advantage of a wealth of expertise that exists in the Foreign Commercial Service uh, within the U.S. Uh, Embassy. Uh, with regard to our, our questions here, we have uh, fully uh, 45 uh, minutes uh, for them, um, and there are more than we can possibly um, uh, ask, but uh, let's have a go at it. Uh, there. Um, what opportunities specifically exist in education, such as infrastructure and technology? Where, where, does, where do people go to get this kind of education? Anybody on the um, uh, session panel here? Hmm. I'll give an example. Um, and going back to, to Libya, on one of the direct line calls, it was clear that on our side there were a number of companies and entities that precisely wanted to uh, look at the education sector to see whether it was providing services um, or equipment and so forth as the country obviously was going to need to upgrade skills. So it is an area. It's hard to define and get to um, specifically in any one place. But I would suggest for those interested in that, um, that probably the best thing to do, and we publicize widely, is whenever, whether it be in Morocco or Tunisia or whatever, whenever the ambassador is going to do the next direct line, now get on and ask the question. That would be the best. We have educational programs, but that's to foster cultural understanding. That's this whole separate thing. Uh, but there definitely are opportunities. And companies that are in the region we're also partnering with universities, which is something that's happening globally, um, to foster right skills. And also, it's good corporate social responsibility. So there, there are definitely opportunities. Just to follow up on that, on Libya specifically, and there's also, you know, there's a lot of work that needs to be done in the pre-K to 12 and then in the university space. There's a lot of universities, but it needs to be upgraded. But let's take English for an example. So if you are birth to about 45 years old, your English language skills are not good at all in Libya. If you're about 50 years old to about 80 years old, your English language skills are perfect. Why? 
because in that period of 50 to 85-year-old people, they had been to the United States at least once for one year doing university studies. So you will find a fluency in English language in that age group. Okay? Anybody below that, the English language skills are very challenging. There were no American or English-based movies. There were no English television, very little of it that got into Libya. And the furthest anybody ever got west was usually London, but only the elite of the elite got out and got to, to London and learned their English language skills there. So for something as basic as that, I can tell you there's a huge market in Libya for English language teachers. Um, what's the principal uh, competition countrywide uh, for American um, companies? Uh, uh, France has had a linguistic edge in uh, Morocco, Algeria, and Tunisia. Italy, uh, with regard to Libya. Uh, there's also Turkey that, that has become a competitor. Um, how would you rank or rate them, uh, and, and why would you put this country number one and this one number two. What are the reasons and how competitive can the United States be in trying to surmount whatever strategic advantages or economic gains that they bring to the table? Um, if I could answer, so partially answer the question, I can't really rank. I mean, we're looking at very specific projects usually, and so it really ranges from country to country with sector to sector um, in terms of what the competition is and how attractive the products or services are, and also the pros and cons of, you know, like in Algeria with the French, they have, there's some, there are some advantages to being French and some disadvantages to being French in terms of working with them. So it's, it's, uh, the one size fits all doesn't really work. One thing, though, just to, to amplify something that, that both Rhonda and, and Laura had talked about, giving an example in Morocco, is in the solar area, as, as was mentioned, they, they have extremely ambitious goals. They're trying to develop their domestic energy resources um, there, and, and they're putting a lot of money together to put behind that. The key thing, and why there is now a competitive opportunity on the U.S. side that wasn't there before, is because the Moroccans are putting their own money into it. So much of what they've done in recent years, in the last decade or more, was using um, aid money from Europe, which was tied. Hence, Spanish, French, German companies had a tremendous advantage over the United States. Now, the Moroccans are extremely keen to have broader competition and U.S. companies are really going after that and then to build on that is we're all working together over the last couple of years we've had reverse trade missions in this area the commercial services have trade missions the U.S. chamber has had trade missions there's our strategic dialogue and U.S. companies are setting up their setting up shop and setting up um, offices in Morocco in this sector because they're seeing so much opportunity so that's really to emphasize this issue of if you want to work in an in an area, do your homework, and if you see an opportunity, find a way to get over there. When you're meeting with people to say, I'm here, and I have a business card that has an address in your city, as opposed to back in New York, you know, you can have it on both sides, that's yeah. fine, but you need to somehow be working locally to really enhance that credibility, because again, rightly or wrongly, we do have a lot of the reputation of we come in, do the deal, and leave. Um, it's, uh, the French can obviously do that too because they can just fly over for the day. But that's and that's a different area. We have that reputation. I think it's very important again to go over. Now, of course, just willy nilly going over and saying here I am and you know I'm expecting to get some work is that's another matter. You have to do your homework and see what the what that opportunity is. But don't be put off by necessarily the fact that there are other countries that are active there. I'd actually like to add a couple comments to that. 
Um, another another part of the world that is is wanting to enter and could be potential competition. This should be no surprise. Um, China are trying to enter uh, North African market um, pretty with a lot of gusto, let's say. Um, the other country that Dr. Anthony mentioned was Turkey. Now, Turkey actually it is a competitor, um, but I would also like to note that it could be a partner um, going into these countries. Um, if you partner with the Turkish companies that have the knowledge, who have already been on the ground for a while, they may be an excellent way to get your foot in the door. So instead of all, you know necessarily looking at particularly Turkey and, and other countries as well um, as a competitor, it might also be to your benefit to look at them as a possible partner in entering these countries. I can add to that. We are going to have a global infrastructure conference coming soon, and Turkey is a key participant. And one of the focuses between our companies and their representatives will be how can we partner together in key regions to include this region. Also, if I can give some specific examples in Libya. So on the airport, all the rebuilding of all the airports you know, prior to the revolution went to TAV, Turkish construction company. The um, contract for the railway, high-speed railway, went to the Chinese, but that contract has been nullified. Um, the French were very good in the space of defense and telecommunications, um, and so they were heavily competing in Libya, and of course the Italians for almost everything. And then one example, specific example I'll give, which I thought was an incredibly smart way to enter the market, was Marriott. So Marriott joint ventured with the South Koreans, Daewoo, who built a hotel, literally right on the Mediterranean, right in downtown Tripoli. It's a beautiful hotel. But Marriott basically joint ventured with Daewoo. Daewoo did all the work, got all the, you know, uh, dealt with the government, got all the, the permits that they needed to build. They built the structure, brought in the labor, but Marriott branded it. So it is now a Marriott, as many of you know, good U.S. corporation hotel in downtown Tripoli. has yet to open just because of some timing problems and whatnot, but it will. Um, and that was a very smart way, frankly, to, to open it up. And there is a Radisson there, another American hotel there, but there's an incredible opportunity in the tourism sector alone for American companies to enter the market. John, John can I just add one, one comment that I, uh, was actually offered to us at, at our... Uh, era, uh, at our U.S. Ambassadors uh, Forum we had just uh, a couple months ago, and this question was asked. And uh, uh, one of the American ambassadors in the region said, look, if, if, if American companies let the conversation just be about price, you know, you're in for a hard time. But, but, but that's not all everybody in the region is interested in. And, and, and what American companies have to emphasize and what, what the people in the region look for to American companies for is quality products with uh, a long-term partnership, technology transfer, and again, job creation. A lot of our competitors, you know, have a terrible reputation for coming in and bringing a whole workforce with them, putting something up, and leaving. They 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 they, they contribute nothing to the long-term uh, sort of development of of the country, and that's where America actually is is, a, is has a shining reputation. With regard to setting up uh, a regional office versus a, a country-specific office, or both, um, are there, what are the advantages and disadvantages of having one office, let's say in Morocco, and you, you want to be looking at projects in Libya, Tunisia, and Algeria, or vice versa, you set it up in Libya and you want to do projects or explore uh, possibilities for business? 
in um, Morocco, Tunisia, and Algeria. Now, what are the pros and cons of that? And B, for the new uh, willing, excited, uh, risk-taking investor, what would you estimate as a minimum that they would have to pay for, let's say, um, a three-person office anywhere among the the five Maghrebi uh, countries? Uh, 200,000, 600,000, a million point five. Can you come up with a ballpark figure? Talking about transportation, uh, rent, uh, perhaps schooling for your children, and um, coming back for a month's vacation. Uh, what, what's, what's the arithmetic on these things? Because that can be off putting or it can be um, enticing. Anybody? Yeah, I'll weigh in on that with respect to Libya. Um, I would not recommend setting up an office anywhere else but Libya. Um, the biggest mistake I've made, I've seen made by American companies is somehow they think that sending their Egyptian representatives over to Libya is a really good thing. And I'm Egyptian, okay, so no bias here, but... If you're, gonna, if you're an American company, please send your American men or women. All the better if they have a Texas accent, okay? Because they want to see Americans. They don't want to see your guys or gals from the U.K., okay? They want to see Americans. So, with all due respect to everywhere else uh, in North Africa... Um, including Egypt, which is a fabulous place to do business, and Tunisia and Algeria and Morocco, set up in Libya. Don't do this satellite office thing. Um, you know, obviously, you know, you have to be careful of the security situation there. And, you know, some people decide they're going to set up in Morocco or you know, even in Egypt or even Tunisia because the security situation is better. It's not the case. Um, you know, things are going to settle down. Things are operating in Libya appropriately. You know, things are becoming uh, in check there. So uh, no worries there on that end. But that's what I recommend in particular. Now, it may be different, certainly, with other North African countries. Even American companies do this, set up in Dubai. Well, newsflash, everybody, Dubai's really not the Middle East. I'm sorry. I mean, no more than Las Vegas is America, okay? I mean, it's not. And, you know, everybody thinks, wow, we're setting up a meeting, you know, an office in Dubai. Well, Dubai's great. It's flourishing. Terrific. But if you want to do business in North Africa, go to North Africa. Go to that country. As far as the finances go, it really does depend. Of those, for instance, three people you're setting up, and I think you know a half a million dollars is probably ballpark figure. Uh, who are you hiring there? What level of your company's personnel are you putting there? Are you putting any locals there to staff that office? Um, relatively, rents are extraordinarily reasonable, uh, particularly in the North African region. It depends if you're in the cities like Tripoli or Cairo or Tunisia or Tunis. going to be a little bit higher than if you were to put your office somewhere else in that country, but I would recommend, obviously, wanting to be in the capitals. Um, there are certainly good schools there um, with reasonable tuitions for your kids. Uh, some of those countries do have American schools if you choose to put your child in either American or British schools or even international schools. Um, there's some very good schooling uh, there. Um, cost of living there is cheaper than Washington, D.C., I can tell you that. And sometimes the food is a lot better. Um, and so the way you get around, certainly cars and drivers and transportation is a lot more reasonable than it is in some large U.S. cities. Um, so without holding me to it, I would say, you know, 
give me a call. Uh, and, you know, you can work out a budget um, as far as wanting to go over there. And that's something, frankly, that you have to figure in, including your registration costs and what it would cost to actually set up your physical presence there. There's a lot that goes to it. It's not just your physical presence, but the appropriate paperwork you do have to file with some of these governments. Let me add one word on security. Every embassy overseas has an overseas security advisory group that works with U.S. businesses. Anybody can join, contact the security side of the embassy, engage, get a feel for is this a good place, et cetera. So they can also help round out the picture. Um, what can you say about corporate taxation for foreign di uh, direct investment um, throughout these four or five countries? What is the uh, standard corporate tax rate? And what uh, sectors are given tax-free holidays for 10 years or whatever. I'll take a stab at not answering the question. Um, I, can't, I, can't, I can't answer the question. I think it really does vary uh, considerably, and it's changing also you know, fairly rapidly as some of these countries are, are uh, you know, instituting new new forms of government and everything. It, it's really pretty hard to say. I think uh, what, what I recommend is, is do, do a little research and be, be in touch with the U.S. Uh, commercial service um, people. They're, they have a terrific website that tracks this, uh, this kind of information uh, certainly better than, than we can. Um, and frankly, you know, be in touch with the company's embassies here and their commercial and trade people here because they, they often uh, know those kinds of details about programs that are offered in their country about, about, um, uh, as well as anybody. So th those are my two recommendations to try to get the best answer on, on that question. Well, it couldn't be more basic um, a piece of information and knowledge in the sense that a person saying, why should I invest in this region when there are more lucrative opportunities elsewhere? And uh, lucrative is being uh, linked to the uh, the tax rate uh, in that elsewhere uh, region of the world. Let me just answer one thing. For every country, there's an investment report. It's online. If you look at the embassy website of the particular country, let's say Morocco, there's a new business tab on each and every one. So you'll find it. But as I note, it's rapidly changing. So for a deal in a specific sector, et cetera, Perhaps, you know, working with local council or a specialized firm or whatever will help you drill down as to what the rate would be on a particular project. Okay. And none of you have uh, focused on uh, the um, ardent uh, fervor of um, trade union movements in uh, Tunisia and Morocco in particular. Tunisia's uh, trade union movement um, was second to none in the entire Arab world for the longest period of time. And Morocco has five trade union federations. <laughs> One of them is that <laughs> you cannot belong to it unless you're unemployed. <laughs> and it, it demonstrates daily outside of the uh, Moroccan parliament. So members of Congress that have taken their, uh, come out of the parliament to be greeted by uh, the leaders of that particular trade union movement. Uh, they're well organized, they can organize rapidly, and they are looking at these issues of foreign di uh, direct investment in terms of their own uh, individual interests, which are no different than organized labor interests uh, elsewhere in the world, uh, Tunisia, Morocco in particular. 
comments, anyone? I would just say to that that I mean I think it I think it emphasizes the point I, the point that I tried to make uh, earlier, which is that you know job creation uh, is is uh, you know more desperate in North Africa than it is here. I mean I mean uh, coming into these countries with a with a plan uh, that includes. Uh, helping create jobs in these countries and working with these trade unions uh, is is going to be a, a a top selling point to any project that that you bring to these countries, and um, you know uh, it, it's an absolutely critical piece of the political and economic development uh, that's going on in the region. Well, only one of you has uh, mentioned the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act of. 1976, but there are two other American uh, laws that inhibit um, trade and investment opportunities uh, in the region, the 1975 anti-Arab boycott legislation, one of which is administered in commerce, the other in treasury, and uh, the amendment to the Tax Reform Act of 1978 which um, makes it difficult for Americans to market in competition with, say, the French, which have a more lax um, a competitive and marketing uh, culture and uh, practice. Can you address these two issues? Okay. Yeah. Um, well, as far as the anti-boycott, Legislation. Um, I have not found that to be a barrier in places. Um, you know, certainly while um, Congress continues to press on that in various forms of legislation, uh, for instance, um, I get questions all the time, particularly in North Africa, if I have an Israeli stamp in my passport, if I've done business in Israel, you know, how much does that really affect things? You know, wink, nod, look the other way. I have never seen that with all my clients going in to become a barrier, nor has the anti-boycott issue become a barrier, in, particularly in North Africa. Now, keeping in mind that Egypt has peace with Israel, of course. Some of the others do not. But that hasn't become a problem. Nor has I found, have I found the tax provision to be a barrier. Um, the real issue really is, and the reason why I brought up FCPA, is because that really is the barrier. That is an issue, and I have to tell you very frankly, American companies feel at a strong disadvantage competing against, particularly, their European compatriots on issues and on, on uh, contracts where FCPA is strongly enforced. Um, and so I would say from, from a legal perspective, that is the one that, and I'm not at all suggesting that that shouldn't be in place, uh, but that is the one that provides the most barriers and the most difficulty for U.S. companies entering that market. I'll also say one more thing, um, which is the ability of the U.S. government at high levels to advocate on behalf of American companies. So in a situation where you as an American company are competing against your foreign competitor and it's down to between you and that foreign competitor, um, I would personally like to see the U.S. government engage at higher levels on the advocacy. Okay, the Commerce Department has the advocacy center. That's great. But I would like to see U.S. ambassadors in their private meetings with some of the leaders of these countries say, 
and advocate directly for American companies to get these contracts. And certainly it would be great to add talking points, whether it's the Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, and Secretary of Energy. I was a big advocate of that when I was in the U.S. government. I viewed part of my job as advocating on behalf of U.S. companies because it means U.S. jobs. It means, you know, our personal, you know, uh, to our personal benefit here with the economy, but also our national security. And so I would like to see, and I certainly, I, I have to say, this administration has done more of that than any previous administrations has. But I still don't think it rises to the level of having the president of a particular country stroll in on a red carpet and go to these particular countries. And I have to tell you, that's where our European competitors beat us. It means nothing for their presidents to roll into these countries and shake hands and go meet with everybody. And, you know, with us, it's like, you know, don't let the door hit you on the way out. We just can't bring ourselves to get a cabinet member over there, much less the president. So let me... Uh make two announcements in that respect. One, uh, good good announcements because I lead the effort, which is great, which is on advocacy, something that had declined for a while. Um, there is an amazing effort uh, within state but across that every single deputy assistant secretary who travels, everybody who is on the road will advocate. We'll have points. We'll speak of a specific company. And it is being enforced. It is reported on monthly. My office compiles the stats. And boy, the marching orders are out there, which is great. In terms of competition um, in general, we do not have with our chambers, uh, the AmCham's overseas and other chambers, the same relationship that the French, the Germans, and others have where they get monies from the central government. It is a much tighter bond. It is a, it's a model they've had for years. We have attempted to transform our relationship with the chamber and the chambers by pulling them all in. We did the global business conference, et cetera, to try to create new synergies, but we do not have the same model. There, is no, there are no federal funds that flow to the AmCham's overseas requiring that symbiotic relationship. So it always will be something different. The effort under the NEI, pulling across all the agencies, also involves obviously the direction from the White House. And there is a tightening there also that is taking place in terms of assets that are overseas and what they're doing. So there is a lot behind the scenes that a lot of people don't know. But on the advocacy per se, that is marching orders for everybody. Um, in terms of legislation and the penalties there, too, having, uh, in my experience, seen it, that uh, it can work to the advantage of American companies because some know never to approach you with the unwarranted solicitude or whatever. They know that. But it also happens that in some markets, somebody will call up the embassy and say, your company or XYZ company is doing bad things because they want to wipe you out as a competition. And we have to take all reports seriously. So it can be an advantage, but beware of competitors who often, you know, I shouldn't say often, but who sometimes do call up and say, this U.S. company is involved in bad deeds. Uh, questions uh, for more specificity of detail pertaining to uh, corruption and cronyism uh, there. Um, and what is the role of public-private partnerships in North Africa. Uh, I think additional comment on that would be of interest and welcome. Um, as Libya's gas and oil industry develops, how will transporting these resources through areas of political unrest affect market prices? 
and how does Libya plan on developing its transportation infrastructure, roads, highways, and how quickly? Um, what reform measures must Morocco's Mohammed Sadis, Mohammed the Sixth King, uh, need to enact in order to promote a more friendly business environment and reduce corruption and cronyism? Uh, same thing with regard to Libya. You did, you did not address uh, the issue of corruption. How prevalent is it? And what is the prospect of a more transparent business environment? And could you give some examples of what, uh, by our laws, would be deemed uh, going into a corruption or cronyism or special favoritism uh, that uh, Americans might not really find credible? Uh, but the cases are indeed credible. Uh, for example, a minister saying, uh, I understand uh, you have uh, the best medical practices in the Cleveland Clinic or the Mayo Clinic or something. I have a 13-year-old daughter who's got infantile paralysis. We can't find anybody here who can help her. Can, can you help uh, me uh, get her into this or that hospital? Uh, people here would say that, no, you have to answer no. Uh, if you're bidding on a project for which that minister has signature authority. So there are these gray areas, but they're intimidating because of that grayness there. Uh, how have the uh, changes in government in North Africa affected government contracting procedures as opposed to private uh, investment as such? Um, and would Libya or any of the other North African countries be open to um, exploring the possibility for conventional arms manufacturing uh, business. Okay. Any of you? <laughs> okay. Well, I'll take a couple of those. On the energy industry, um, Libya continued, as many of you know, to really do a terrific job. Their petroleum sector is one of the best developed sectors, not only in Libya, but throughout North Africa, if not the Middle East. So even during the revolution, you may have heard that they continued to transport oil. Uh, very few of its facilities were bombed or affected by the revolution. So the National Oil Company of Libya is actually, you know, they get three gold stars for what they continue to do. So I don't foresee a situation where there might be disruption even throughout the neighborhood there, where in any way the transportation problem will be a problem. Um, where I do see the area, for those of you who are involved in critical infrastructure protection, it's one of my favorite things coming out of the Energy Department. Libya, I believe, is in desperate need of that. I don't think they realize um, what they have. They've got more as far as gas production goes as well. And I think there's going to be a strong need for the critical infrastructure sector, particularly in the oil the petroleum and gas sector. Um, everything from roads to bridges to highways. Um, Libya is not a big country, and it's also, you know, there's only five to six million people in Libya, of which a million are expats and happen to be a great deal of laborers from Egypt. Uh, so you don't have a large population there, but you have a strong need for an overall transportation planning sector. So those of you in the consulting business who do overall projects, project management with respect to transportation. There's a great market for you there. Um, upgrading existing, but also building new facilities. As far as corruption goes, um, you know, old habits die hard. 
okay, the way that business was done and the corruption that existed prior to the revolution, you know, I won't lie, probably still exists there today. The difference is there is more transparency, there's more rules and laws being developed to try and prevent that. Um, But two basic examples of something like that would not necessarily be the minister themselves, would be the the government directs you to hire a an agent or a private sector individual that happens to be connected in some way or another to the government. And that's illegal under the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. You have to make sure that there are no ties to individuals within the government. And, of course, that there's no trail of money going back to that. But also... Um, one example I personally saw was the, you know, somebody involved in the government wanted their son hired by the American company if the American company got the contract. And so those are the types of things you see. You see them on the street. You've got to be able to spot right away. Well, sorry, we're not going to talk to you. You know, walk out of the office, you know, game over. Uh, but you have to be able to work through these sorts of issues. And in some cases, and frankly in most cases, they know that it's particularly not allowed with respect to American companies. Okay, this one's for Steve, and the last one's for Carl. Um, what specific medical uh, and medical device projects would your agency back? Uh, does that apply to assisting existing hospitals um, or only uh, new ones in terms of an infusion of medical equipment? And Carl, the USTDA had two... Um, uh, de- delegations to Libya and Egypt on ICT subjects. Are the reports available? On the medical front, we would provide financing uh, essentially for all um, products in the spectrum. So the bulk of our support to date on this initiative has been uh, medical equipment. So uh, equipment made by GE and Philips, even though Philips is not a a U.S.-grown company, uh, they do have uh, manufacturing facilities here. And that is the tie for our financing is that the equipment uh, and the services have to be generated here in the U.S. So we can provide financing for uh, those one-off purchases of equipment. Uh, We're also looking at uh, hospital projects around the world. Uh, that are being built by uh, the Ministry of Health or some other government authority. And so then we can provide uh, financing to that sovereign entity for the hospital project. So to broadly answer the question, from the small product to the large um, all-encompassing hospital project or medical facility, we could provide financing for some or all of that uh, development based on the um, source of the equipment. Um, With respect, I'm not sure exactly what activities are being referred to, but for our reverse trade missions and studies and so on, there's a public version of everything that we do that is available. So if you go to our, if you call up our our library, you can order anything like that. In terms of, might be referred to some of our definitional mission um, visits, and there's a write-up after that, or there's a report. Some of those are public, some of those are not. There's a lot of conf- business confidential information sometimes with those, So, but on a case-by-case basis. So if you, there's one something you're specifically interested in, feel free to call me or check with our library. Yes, there were several questions um, alluding to what prospects for further <coughs> integration amongst these uh, countries. And uh, a little background and context uh, here is... Uh, 
of interest and value. 1956 was established the Maghreb Permanent Consultative Committee. It was ambitious in vision with regard to Morocco, Tunisia, and Libya. But Morocco and Tunisia were still in the early stages of their national sovereignty. Nothing came of it. Further, in 1987, February 14th, the Arab Maghreb Union was established and similarly ambitious, but nothing came from it. And lastly, the Arab Military Industries Organization was founded in the 70s. Um, involving Egypt um, and, and Libya, Qatar and the uh, UAE, but uh, that uh, came to nothing as well. And the last one was the Confederation of Arab Republics uh, from 1971 roughly to 1973, which involved uh, Libya, Syria, Sudan, and Egypt. And though it has a building, a lovely one, in Heliopolis in Cairo, nothing has come from that either. Uh, we'll close this particular session. We, we've learned a lot, I believe, in terms of what is happening, what is not happening, uh, where the difficulties are, and where the assets uh, are for those who are interested in delving deeper into the prospects for infrastructure business opportunities in Arab North Africa. Please join me in thanking as speakers.